The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. This morning we're in John chapter 6, verses 35 through 51. We're going to talk about end your hunger. End your hunger. And no, I don't mean you thinking about lunch the whole time this morning. We're going to show, Christ is going to show us that this is a deeper hunger that he's come to end. John chapter 6 Verses 35 through 51. Uh, I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for revealing Your Word to us and calling us to respond. Lord, we thank You for drawing us to You. Father, we thank You for giving us to the Son so that He could come and save us and preserve us and keep us all the way to the last day where we will be raised in Him to eternal life forever. Lord, we look forward to that day, but Lord, we live in a present evil age where our hearts are tempted to find satisfaction elsewhere, but Lord, draw us back to Christ today. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, church, i got to tell you something. 
I have never understood the obsession with the Rolling Stones. Old, skinny men dancing around in tight leather pants. Now, I understand that I miss their prime, but I, to be honest with you, I think I'm thankful that I miss their prime. However, I do understand the appeal of their most famous song, where they repeat these words, I can't get no satisfaction. That song, in fact, a few years ago, was voted the number two song in Rolling Stone magazine's list of 500 greatest songs. That was number two. Did a little research on that song. Mick Jagger actually wrote it at a motel in Clearwater, Florida, which is where Nikki and I were last week. And I have to admit, I felt the same exact thing when I was in Clearwater, Florida. There I was. Now, and I just need to be honest, it's nothing against Clearwater. It's a great place. It's fine. I honestly feel this every time I go on vacation. I want you just to think about it and see if you can relate to this. You look forward to it for weeks, maybe months. You save a lot of money. You make all kinds of plans and arrangements, your children and your pets and your animals and your house and your mail and your trash. All, you have to take off work. You have to make sure everything that you normally do gets covered. All this work, all this money saved, all this planning. Why? Because you can't wait to go on vacation. And then you go. And then you spend all that money that you saved. And by about day three, as you sit beside the pool, bored to death, you begin to realize, is this it? Is this what I was looking forward to? And it's not just vacation. This is literally everything in our lives. Think about this with me. The degree that you worked so hard for. The new job that you couldn't wait to get. The new house that you built. The new car that you bought. The raise that you got. Finally, this year, my family is going to be able to do everything that we want to do because we got this raise. Inflation. The experience. The restaurant. All of these things. And listen, they may provide temporary satisfaction. But none of it, none of it gets you to that point where you say, finally, finally, I have found what I'm looking for. And so many of us, listen to me, so many of us spend our entire lives chasing it, never finding it. And yet never concluding that this world doesn't have what we're looking for. Undeterred. So many people tragically go all the way to the grave thinking maybe the next thing will be it. One of the wisest thinkers who has ever lived, a man by the name of Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. for short, once wrote these words, 
If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Now church, that's the truth. But sadly, it is a rare thing for someone to actually reach that conclusion. And I want you to know that this isn't just a 21st century problem. This isn't something that the Rolling Stones discovered back when they wrote that song. This has been a universal conundrum from the beginning of time. You can go back and read ancient philosophers thinking about this very thing. Where do we find satisfaction? The book of Ecclesiastes is all about this problem. And yes, here... In the Gospel of John, Jesus' generation, the question that Jesus deals with in this very passage is this question of satisfaction. Now Jesus has just miraculously fed the multitudes. The Bible tells us here that He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He fed them all. And there was 12 baskets left over which were collected. And this was a sign, and that's the point of the passage, is that Jesus keeps telling everybody, what I did, this miracle where I fed you, was a sign, and yet nobody's asking, well, what does it signify? Because everybody's just so fascinated with the fact that Jesus just provided them a miraculous free lunch. The crowds are fixated on the wrong thing. And we see that in John 26, John 6, 26 and 27, where Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaths. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father, has set His seal. The crowds are following Jesus around, but listen to me. They are following Jesus around with the same motivation of all those crazy people who dress their children up like cows and wait at Chick-fil-A. They are following Jesus around because Jesus has something material and temporary to offer them. But even the lunch that Jesus provided them, their stomachs are going to be growling in a few hours from that. And this is the problem with us. We search for satisfaction in things that will never ultimately grant it. And we often see Jesus not as the source of satisfaction, but as the means through which maybe I can get what I really want. You and I ought to relate to this, church. Because listen, this... This conundrum doesn't end the moment that that you're baptized. It doesn't end the moment that you pray the prayer and put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the battle of our lives to continually find satisfaction in Jesus and nowhere else. Or to see, listen, because Jesus never tells us to not enjoy the things of the world, but to see that the things in the world are to be enjoyed not as an end in themselves, but as something that points us to ultimate satisfaction in Him. This is the problem that we have. Well, the first thing that I want us to see in verses 35 through 40 is that satisfaction is a person. 
Satisfaction is a person. The last thing that the crowd say to Jesus in verse 34 is, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus is teaching them about living bread, and they still don't get it. They say, well, give us this bread always. And the point of the living bread is that once you've received it, you don't need it anymore. They're still thinking about lunch. Who wouldn't want bread that, that can be given always to satisfy us whenever we need it, that you don't have to pay for? It's free. And so in that context, Jesus says these words. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, in John's Gospel, there are seven such I am statements that begin just like this. This is the first of them. We're going to be looking at all of them in the coming weeks. So I'm really excited about it. Now, most of the time when Jesus teaches us one of these, it's accompanied by a miracle or a sign. And then Jesus always then goes on to, to give the I am statement, and it always teaches something essential either about who He is or what He came to do. And we're learning here that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the satisfaction. And there's a contrast being made here with Moses and the story of, of Israel in the wilderness looking for manna. This is brought up in verse 32 explicitly. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So you'll remember that scene, right? They're in the wilderness. They've been delivered from Egypt. They're, they're walking around out there, and, and they've just had their enemies crushed. They've just been saved miraculously by God, and they start grumbling. Remember? And so God sends Moses, and Moses Moses provides the God provides it through Moses and the manna falls and they're supposed to collect it every morning but they're only supposed to collect enough for that day they're not supposed to collect more because God's going to provide enough every single day but the point of that whole story is that it doesn't ultimately satisfy them they continue to grumble after it and even after they've eaten it they have to eat it again day by day and there's a contrast being made in verse 35 so when Jesus says I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst Jesus is saying I'm greater than Moses I am the satisfaction of your heart I am everything you've ever been looking for Don't look anywhere else it's not found in history. It's not found in your past. You were made for me. Come to me. I am the satisfaction. It's a person. You know, church, there's a reason. Listen, there's a reason why nothing on this earth can satisfy your heart. Because God hasn't made you to be satisfied by the things of this earth. That's not an easy discovery. There was a man a long time ago, the 4th century, a guy by the name of Augustine. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you pronounce it Augustine. doesn't really matter. Augustine was from North Africa. 
And he was on a search for satisfaction. And we know his whole story because he wrote a book. He wrote a book called The Confessions, one of the most influential books in history. And in it, Augustine details his search for satisfaction. He talks about how he looks for satisfaction in pleasure, in sexual pleasure. And he's sexually devious, and he lives that life, and he ends up with a live-in mistress and a child who lived with him up until his conversion. And so that didn't satisfy him, and so he began looking for satisfaction elsewhere. So he joined a cult, right? That's what you do when you want satisfaction. He joined a cult. It was a cult called the Manichees, and they were crazy. They believed that the world was made up of matter and spirit, and God represented spirit, and evil was, was, was in matter. So everything physical was evil, and the battleground was happening in the human heart. And there, were all, there was all this secret knowledge and secret rituals, and Augustine actually progressed very high up the chain in Manichaeism. He was becoming a leader in this cult, but, but he kept re- recognizing, even in the midst of it, that there's something not right with this. This is not what I'm looking for. And so he began to pursue philosophy. He began to seek wisdom. He, he grew in his intellect. He grew in success. He began publishing books. He became a teacher of rhetoric. So, so now, all of a sudden, this guy has is, is, is made something of himself. Augustine's arrived. You, you, you're writing books. You're, 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 you're on the bestseller list. And that didn't satisfy him either. And then providentially, he had accepted a teaching position in this town called in, in Milan, and there was a bishop there by the name of Ambrose, and he began going to the church to hear Ambrose preach. And through this providential encounter, he begins hearing the gospel, and then shortly thereafter, his mother dies and two of his friends die, and so tragedy strikes his life. And tragedy, I don't know if you've known this or if you've ever experienced this church, but tragedy has a way of kind of stripping away the facade doesn't it? All the things we trust in, when tragedy strikes, we begin to recognize that so many of those things don't hold up. They can't bear our weight. Sad that we need tragedy to come to that conclusion, but that's often how it works. And that's how it worked for Augustine. So one day he's in a garden and, and he hears a child's voice and he doesn't know whether it was a real child or if he just heard it Maybe from God or, or if it was in his own imagination, but in the child's voice, he kept hearing the words, take and read, take and read, take and read. And so he opened the Bible to Romans 13, 13 through 14, and he read, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine did that very thing that moment. And he found satisfaction. And in the first chapter of the Confessions, and then if you've ever read it, it's a wonderful book. It's written as a prayer to God. So it's like his life story, but it's to God. And so he's, he's praying and then telling his story, and it's all mixed up. But, but in the very first chapter, he says this, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God, you created us, and we run away from you, and we're restless, and we're restless, and we're unsatisfied, and we're unsatisfied until we come back and we discover that we were made for you. 
And we discover that through Jesus Christ. Church, that's my story too. As the details are different, mainly I, I wasn't ever intellectually successful like Augustine. But all the other things are, oh, I didn't join a cult either. But I was searching for satisfaction in all kinds of things, in all kinds of ways, and that's your story too. It's your story too, isn't it? The details are different, but that's every person's story who's a member of the body of Christ. You know what this gathering is? Do you know what we do on a Sunday morning? This is a gathering of people who have concluded that Jesus Christ is the only one who can satisfy. That's what we do. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we get out of bed in the morning to come here. Because we believe that. Because that's our only hope. Because Jesus is our bread. If I don't eat that bread, I die. He's the bread of life. And yet, Jesus is teaching this to the crowds, and yet so many continue to refuse it. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So this is the problem. If Jesus is the bread of life, if Jesus is the satisfaction, why are people still refusing to believe? In the words of C.S. Lewis, again, if you want to know, you want to read deep thoughts about finding satisfaction, Christ, C.S. Lewis, and Augustine, which is why they're in my sermon this morning. C.S. Lewis says that the reason why we don't is because we are like ignorant children making mud pies in a slum because we don't know what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are satisfied with mud pies in a slum because we have no idea what God has in store for us out here. We can't see it because we live in a cave where we're blinded by our own desires and our own habits. And yet God is over here saying, I've got bread of life for you. I've got satisfaction for you. I've got salvation for you. Why don't you come and taste and see? No, I'm good here. I'm good in my mess. I'm good with these things that have never made me happy. So the question at the heart of what Jesus is about to teach, the issue is, well, then has Jesus' mission failed? Because if he's, the, if he's the bread of life, and yet so many people refuse to believe, refuse to find satisfaction in him, well, the natural next question is, well, does that mean his mission has failed? Because God sent him to be the satisfaction, and yet people are rejecting him. And that's what Jesus deals with in verse 37. That's when he says this. He says, no, it hasn't failed. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What does this mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. It means that the very reason Jesus came was to claim and preserve God's chosen people until the resurrection. This is a verse about God's predestinating grace. God 
has sovereignly decided that he is going to save people in the world and Jesus has come in obedience to the Father to save those people. The mission of God does not fail. God will save his people. That's what this verse means. Now, I know right now, see, mm, he, said, he said predestination. Listen, I just want to just be really clear about this. If you have a problem with that word, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the Bible. God sovereignly chooses his people. And, and we don't like it because we're Americans and we like to talk about my freedom and my choice and my liberty but I want to I set your, your mind at ease on this. I want to I talk about two things to, to help you understand it. Number one, the reason why these verses are in the Bible, the reason why these verses are all over the Bible, is to give you comfort. Because I know that if it wasn't for the sovereign grace of God, I would not remain here. Do you see that? We've been seeing it this morning. God holds us fast. He keeps us. Look at what Jesus says at the second part of the verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me I will keep. I will hold on to. I will preserve you to the end. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me but raise it up on the last day. Jesus isn't going to lose one person that God has sent him to save. So that's the first thing. This is given for your comfort. This is given for your assurance. But the second thing is found in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. In the same breath where Jesus says that God sovereignly gives people to Jesus to save, in the very same breath, Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. In other words, in Scripture, there is no conflict between the sovereignty of God and salvation and the choice of the believer to believe and look on the Son. You can try to reconcile it. Smart people have tried since the beginning of time, but just know this. There's nothing to reconcile. I want to tell you this this morning. If it weren't for God's electing grace, this church would be empty and every church in, the, in this world would be empty. But I want to tell you something else. If you would have never believed the gospel and looked on Jesus with faith, this church would be empty and every church in the United States would be empty. You are not saved by trusting that God would choose you or elect you. You are saved by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? There's, both of those things are true. Our responsibility is to believe. We will be held accountable before God for whether or not we believed in Jesus or not. That's on us. That's not on God. So here's the question for you. 
This is what you got to ask yourself. Especially, listen, especially if you're here today and you're not a believer in this. <laughs> Aren't you tired of chasing something so futilely that you're never going to get? Don't you know that in the same way that God led Augustine to Ambrose, God has led you here today to know that Jesus is the bread of life and you can put your faith in Jesus Christ today and be satisfied. This is our hope. This is, listen, this isn't some fad. This isn't some new thing. God has been doing this in the world for over 2,000 years. He will save your soul today if you trust Him. You will find joy like you've never imagined in Christ. You will find peace and assurance and forgiveness. Jesus wants to be your satisfaction. He's not here to give you satisfaction in something else. He wants to replace all the other things that you're finding satisfaction in. And it's free. And it's for you. And you can have it now. But not everybody does. That's the second thing I want us to look at in verses 41 through 43, settling for, for less. Settling for less. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Do you, do you remember the manna story? Do you remember what brought it about? Do you remember how the Israelites were grumbling in the wilderness? They were grumbling because God had just saved them. And so what do we see? The Jews here grumbled. That word's intentional. John wants us to see that this is just a repeat of something that had happened before. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Isn't that, isn't that little Jesus that used to come over and play with my kids in the backyard on the swing set? I know his dad, Joseph, and his mom, Mary. I bought a cabinet from his dad a couple weeks ago. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're not impressed by it. And then Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. This is the problem. See, this is the heart of unbelief. The heart of unbelief looks at Jesus, hears about Jesus, and then walks away from Jesus because they're not impressed by Jesus. You see, that is exactly what it means to grumble. He's too ordinary. He's just another man. He, he just came. Maybe you say, he's just a moral teacher. He, he did some good things. I really like what he said about love, but all this stuff about a death and a resurrection, I don't know about all that. I'm just not that impressed by him. And we can do this too, church. Especially once we've put our faith in Jesus, sometimes it's tempting in those first few weeks when we start getting ingrained in the church and the life of the church and, and we begin to see, you know, we, we come into the Christian faith with all these emotions and then we begin to settle in and life kind of becomes normal again and it's really easy to go, that's it? I thought I was going to be on an emotional mountaintop for the rest of my life. And no, you know, Jesus doesn't want you trusting in your emotional experiences. He wants you trusting in Him. That's not the way it works. And so we can easily grumble 
And what Jesus tells us in verses 41 through 43 is that grumbling is unbelief. Grumbling is a failure to trust God's word. Grumbling is a denial of who Jesus is. To grumble in the face of Jesus, to complain in the face of Jesus, is to say to Jesus, you cannot satisfy me. You don't have what it takes. And we live in a cultural context where we've kind of turned grumbling into an art form. Sometimes when we gather with our friends, it's the first thing we do. we've, We've trained our hearts to focus on all the things we don't have instead of focusing on all the things that Christ has given us. And I just want you to see that that's not the way God wants us to live. He wants us to be satisfied in Jesus because a grumbling heart is an unsatisfied heart. What does such a heart say about Jesus? It says Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. Church, listen to me. If you want to show your children and your neighbors and your co-workers the truth of the gospel, show your children and your neighbors and your co-workers satisfaction in Jesus. Quit complaining in front of your children and your neighbors and your co-workers. Quit grumbling about everything that's wrong and begin Training your heart to be fed by Jesus because Jesus is enough. And you know what? When people see that, they are going to be drawn to that because you don't find that anywhere else in the universe. You don't find true satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. We are the people who are satisfied in Jesus That's us. And listen, we're satisfied when there's wars going on. We're satisfied in in inflation. We're satisfied in COVID pandemics. We're satisfied no matter who's in the White House. We're satisfied because none of it changes. Everything we have is in Christ, and that hasn't changed. And here's the third thing I want us to see. We are drawn to satisfaction Verses 44 through 51. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Remember, I told you at the beginning that John is always looking back to where Jesus came from and looking forward to where Jesus is going. And so you have Jesus always talking about the last day. We're looking forward to the last day. We will be raised up in Jesus on the last day. But we come because we're drawn. We're drawn by God the Father to Jesus. In other words, you can't find this on your own. God has to come first. He has to speak to us first. There, listen, church, there's a reason. So some, the, the, Michelle, the administrative assistant in Lexington recently said, what, what's all this, what's liturgy? What, what's Casey doing out there? And you know, we've talked about it here. You got it in your worship sheet, your worship service, the liturgy guide. And, and you're going to notice something every week that our, our worship liturgy 
is this pattern off of God speaking and us responding because that is what worship is. Worship is revelation and response. God comes and reveals Himself and we respond to Him. We begin with the Word of God and then we sing. We hear the Word of God preached and then we sing. We, we are always responding to God's Word. All worship is response because God has drawn us to Him. That's what verse 44 means. And then Jesus elaborates on it. He shows us how this happens. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets. And he's specifically here quoting Isaiah 54, verse 13. And it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. And so Jesus begins teaching on that verse. What does that verse mean? Jesus tells us. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. How are we drawn? We're drawn by the Word. If we're grumbling, if we refuse to believe in the face of Jesus, it is an indication that God's Word has not drawn us. Any right reading of God's Word will lead us always right to Jesus. Every passage in the Bible, the Bible takes us straight to Jesus again and again. And then in verses 48 through 51, Jesus repeats what He said at the beginning, I am the bread of life, and He begins to elaborate on that more. In fact, all of this fixes, fixates on that analogy. He is the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Did that manna satisfy them? No, it didn't. Nothing in this world will. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus makes explicit everything that He's been talking about. How does Jesus satisfy hungry souls? He satisfies us by giving His flesh on the cross. He satisfies us by dying in our place. He satisfies us because we are sinners and our sin demands payment. And Jesus says, I will pay the payment so that my people will never have to. We are satisfied through His death. We are satisfied through His atonement. His flesh is the food. We eat of Him and find satisfaction. Eating is believing, trusting, delighting. That's what it means. So here's how we're going to conclude this this morning. Listen, listen very carefully. Saving faith is not coming to Jesus for anything else. Okay? That's not saving faith. You know, sometimes I talk to new parents. They have a kid. Kids tend to change things. Parents go, well, I'm raising this child in a crazy world. I want this child to have some structure and some, and some morality. And so I'm going to go start going to church so that my kids will have structure and morality. And what are we doing when we do that? We're saying Jesus is the means to an end. What is He a means? He's the means to moral children. That's not saving faith, church. 
You don't come to Jesus for another reason. Jesus isn't here to fulfill your dreams. Jesus is here to replace your dreams. Jesus isn't here to make you happy. Jesus is here to become your happiness. Jesus isn't here to increase the quality of your life. He is here to become your life. He is your life. He hasn't come to grant us morality. He is our righteousness. Do you see the difference? You see the difference between faith and something that's not faith? The crowds had that faith. They were following Jesus. They would have followed Him anywhere He wanted to go. Why? Because Jesus would have fed them bread. He's not a means to an end. If this, all, if, if this whole thing, is, if you're just here and it's just about Jesus doing something for you, you are no different than the hungry crowds. That is not saving faith. Saving faith is when we come to the discovery that Jesus is the bread of life. I have to have Him or I die. My prayer, church, is that every single person in this room would feast on the bread of life. You'll never die. You'll never be unsatisfied for eternity. Let's pray together.